buckle up, amigos. It is gonna be a heck of a ride. Smooth. Because I'll make it so. But, uh, bumpy if somebody else was doing this. We got a lot to hit. A lot to hit. I've been trying so hard to figure out what I wanted to start off with. There's so much to get to. Uh, we're gonna learn a new acronym today. By the end of the episode, you'll hopefully be saying it with me. Mama. Mama. No, 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 no. I'm not pretending to be some leftist living in the home of his mama's basement. Mama, make America manly again. Say it with me. Mama, make America manly again or masculine again. That's the objective. That's what we need to save the country. But before I get into that, more on that momentarily, my friends, this is Drew Allen, by the way, host of The Drew Allen Show, your illustrious conservative genius. I'm kidding, of course. Sort of. Well, Fauci got COVID. I don't know if you heard about it. Send your prayers his way. He probably doesn't need them, though, because, you know, like they always say, I mean, he's double. I mean, I don't know. He's probably had 36 shots by now. He's the king of the vaccine. Dr. Fauci, well, he's, he's contracted COVID. Uh, so don't worry, though. We know how this goes. He's got the talking points ready. I am so thankful for the vaccine and boosters. I'm only experiencing mild symptoms. Uh, if I hadn't gotten the vaccine, I'd most certainly be dead. Make sure to go out and get vaccinated. You, too, can get COVID like me with the vaccine and boosters. But don't worry. It's mild. You won't die. Oh, boy. Anyway... Poetic justice to some extent. I look, I don't wish Fauci any any harm in that sense. I mean, I hope he goes to jail. He should rot in a jail cell. But uh, in terms of bodily harm, absolutely not. I am not a Democrat. I don't wish that even on my worst enemies. Um, another update for you, just to keep things light and fluffy for a moment. Light and fluffy, but you know, the, the I say it's light and fluffy, uh, but at the same time, it's got some substance to it because I don't talk about meaningless things on this show. I decide what to talk about because they're important and also just because I want to talk about them. Uh, so, so Starbucks employees, there's this, there's this, there, pardon me. You see what happens when I don't do a podcast for a week? I start tripping over my words. Uh, so there's been this big push. It doesn't get any attention and uh, I want to address it briefly. Pro-union Biden. He's out there encouraging unionization across the country with Ford, uh, any union he can speak to. He's trying to get union enrollment up. And you know why the Democrats love unions, right? You know why he's pushing unions? Because unions forcibly take money from the union workers' checks and then they contribute it to Democrat politicians. It's a fundraising arm of the Democratic Party. That's it. That's it. And fundraising's down for the Democrats. Uh, they just had to cancel a fundraiser that Kamala Harris was supposed to headline. I'll get into that in a second. But uh, they had to cancel it. Well, they postponed it, they said. You know why they postponed it? Because ticket sales were abysmal. Yeah, yeah. She, they, they say out of one side of their mouths, Kamala Harris is just fantastic. She really rakes in the fundraising, rakes in, you know, she's so exciting, so exciting. And then they have to cancel a fundraiser that she's supposed to speak out. She's the headliner. They can't get anybody to attend. So, you know, Biden really needs these unions because he needs the money. And, and we're not talking a little bit of money. In, in the 2004 election cycle, right? So it's gone up since then. I just know this figure from memory, so I can I can speak to it. But in, in the 2004 election cycle, unions gave 
nearly $1 billion. Nearly $1 billion. And of course, 90%, 95% goes to whom? Democrat politicians. Democrat PACs. Democrats. Their causes. That's, what you, that's why they're so important. So anyway, uh, unions obviously are not uh, so fantastic. There's plenty of cons. I mean, they're bullies. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the union, the unions today, I mean, maybe they had a purpose. I'm not going to get into the history of unions right now, but what unions have become is simply just one, like I said, a fundraising arm of the Democratic Party, and they're bullies. They're bullies. They force you uh, to do what the heads of these unions want. There's no independence. There's no respect. If you go against the union, it's like being a conservative today in America. You know, they step on your throat. They try and destroy you. So anyway, Starbucks, right? I mean, all these employees at Starbucks have been trying to unionize, demanding unions. Starbucks doesn't want them to to, to unionize. Um, And so get this. So Starbucks has covered gender reassignment surgery for its employees since 2013, apparently. And uh, four years ago, Starbucks actually broadened their insurance to include procedures uh, that, that, you know, allegedly cosmetic, right? But that included breast reduction, augmentation surgery, facial feminization. Mama, make America masculine again. None of that at Starbucks. That's where, uh, uh, whatever, facial feminization, unbelievable, and hair transplants, whatever. Okay. But my point is, so Starbucks, let's focus on the gender reassignment surgery, okay? So Starbucks doesn't want the employees to unionize. Now get this. Do you know what Starbucks is threatening if the employees don't back off of their efforts to unionize? They are threatening. Get this. This will make your skin crawl. How could Starbucks threaten this? It's like the nuclear option. Starbucks employees, all right? This is what they're claiming. They're claiming that the restaurant chain, coffee chain, is threatening to strip them of gender-affirming health care if they unionize. That's according to a Tuesday report from Bloomberg. Can you imagine? That is the nuclear option if you're a Starbucks employee. They're threatening to take away. No, no, okay, fine. fine. I mean, the fact that Starbucks, the upper brass, uh, realizes or understands that this is the Achilles heel of its employees, if they take away gender-affirming health care, my gosh, my gosh, they will do anything Starbucks demands because they have to have their gender-affirming health care. I knew I didn't really like Starbucks. Now I know why. Now I know why. There's always been something wrong with a handful of the people in there. And look, I'm not, I'm not attacking every Starbucks employee. The left doesn't have a sense of humor, so I don't care. I'm going to be me because I'm hilarious, and I'm fun, and they can suck it. So anyway, I, I mean, so I guess you got in Starbucks a bunch of people who just want to transition. Is, is that what I'm learning from this? That all these Starbucks employees, you know, they're going to bend the knee because they can't get their gender-affirming health care? They can't go and castrate themselves and become that which they can never actually hope to become? Now, before I get into attacking uh, the latest pansies, in the country, a 75-year-old author this time. Uh, this comes just after last, if you didn't listen to last, last episode, after you listen to this one, rush. Don't waste any time. Listen to the last episode because I talk about Jack Del Rio and how he was a man for a moment and quickly 
quickly. Uh, went from a hero to a zero when he bent the knee because, you know, the lunatics at the Washington commander's organization, the left, got to him. So he apologized for telling the truth, for speaking his mind. So uh, he's not much of a man. Now, is he a coward? So, all right, here I am joking, jesting about these weird Starbucks employees that have to have their gender-affirming health care. You know, I thought, you know, first it was like there's a, tampons in the restrooms. You know, everyone was upset because uh, they had to pay for, I don't know, morning after pills or uh, uh, whatever else. You know, anything that had to do with feminine care, right? That's supposed to be free. That's supposed to be free. That was the big deal, you know. This is ridiculous. This happens to our bodies. We can't help it. This stuff is uh, weighing us down, you know. Pre-inflation, you know. This was just money out of our pockets that we can't help because we have to pay for all these different things. Gosh, you know, free condoms, free whatever. So now it's free gender-affirming health care. You know, they, they just it never ends. But anyway, the left, of course, will say that I'm a horrible person. Uh, because I'm making fun of these Starbucks employees who just can't live without their gender-affirming health care. That's the nail in the coffin. That's going to do it, you know? That's going to keep them from unionizing, you know? I mean, lower their pay, no problem. Uh, take away their education, benefits, whatever, no problem. But gender-affirming health care, that's, that's the red line. Get Hillary Clinton out there with the, the reset button. All right. Uh, but speaking of this, so so there's a, I'm a man, right? So I'm not allowed to criticize any of this stuff, right? I can't criticize transgenderism. I can't talk about Leah Thomas, the swimmer. Uh, I risk cancellation. I'm so fearful. My voice is trembling right now. I'm so fearful of speaking behind this microphone that someone might say an ill word or send me a death threat. So anyway, I won't, I won't say this. Uh, these are not my words, but I endorse them. A teammate of Leah Thomas... Remember, Leah Thomas is a man, but on the women's swimming team. So a teammate of Leah Thomas means it's a woman. Okay. Well, they just said something that, you know, I I know that I'm not allowed to say. Uh, So this teammate of the University of Pennsylvania transgender swimmer Leah Thomas says, you can tell he's mentally ill. Long, dramatic pause. That's right. An anonymous teammate. I don't blame them for being anonymous on this one. An anonymous teammate of University of Pennsylvania transgender swimmer William Thomas, who claims to be a woman and goes by Leah Thomas, well, this teammate alleges he's mentally ill. You think? You think? You know, I was on a radio show doing an interview. I know, it was probably a month or two ago now. And, uh, you know, usually we're all playing on the same team. Every now and then, I get blindsided. I'm on with some kind of rhino or some fake moderate, somebody who's frankly a coward. Uh, you know, they, 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 they believe they're fearful. They toe the liberal line. They let the, the libs dictate what they can and can't say. So courageous are they? Most of these hosts are amazing. Uh, they're conservatives. They're like us. Even if you're not conservative, you know, whatever free speech, you can have a robust debate, even if you disagree. Well, I made the point that transgenderism was a mental illness. In my opinion, it actually the medical community, if they weren't so woke, would come around to this and, and acknowledge it as such, too. Uh, bulimia, anorexia, uh, all these different disorders of body type, I mean, those are not encouraged, right? Someone's bulimic because they want to be skinny. They don't like the way their body looks. They're anorexic. 
you know, because they have body dysmorphia or whatever. You know, we don't encourage that. Why the heck would you encourage someone to chop it off or castrate themselves to transition into an opposite sex that they can never actually biologically become? I mean, I, I, I can, I, I don't say this without compassion, right? I mean, I can say it compassionately. People have all kinds of mental health disorders out there. I don't hate them. Just like I don't hate the alcoholic. I don't hate the drug user, whatever else. These people have issues. We all have issues to some extent. You know, none of us are perfect, but these people have very severe uh, issues. And, uh, you know, again, if you're 18 and over and you want to do something like that, I mean, that is your choice, but it is a mental illness. So uh, there I go. I said I wasn't going to say it. Sorry, sorry. It's not my opinion. This is what this individual is suggesting. Anyway, so this teammate spoke to the Washington Examiner and um, they commented on this recent interview Thomas gave to Good Morning America. And in the interview, um, Thomas, the transgender swimmer on the women's team there uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, talked about going on hormone replacement therapy. All right. And this is what Leah, he said, uh, the mental and emotional changes actually happen very quickly. I was feeling a lot better mentally. I was less depressed and I lost muscle mass and I became a lot weaker and a lot slower in the water while addressing critics that he has an unfair competitive advantage competing against women Thomas said there's a lot of factors that go into a race and how well you do and the biggest change for me is that I'm happy that's okay so you're cheating but you're happy right talk about selfishness this is a mental illness too right I mean many factors but here's a person there's a lot of factors that go into, yeah, like being a man competing with women. That's, that's a factor that goes into a race and how well you do. Um, but he's happy. And um, he says, in sophomore year, where I had my best times competing with the men, I was miserable. Yeah, maybe because uh, you, you, you were losing. I mean, he says he had his best year, but we know what the statistics are. He wasn't winning. So he makes all these women miserable. He takes away their trophies and competition. You know, this is the thing, the selfishness of the culture. And the fact that we are not permitted to call this person out and call them a selfish person, to condemn them, to say that you can't compete in women's sports, you're ruining the sport. But no, no, no. It's all about Thomas, right? Well, he's happy. That's great. He's happy running roughshod over women that biologically are smaller and weaker than him. And he says, uh, trans people don't transition for athletics. We transition to be happy and authentic in our true selves. Transitioning to get an advantage is not something that even factors, ever factors in our decisions. What a bunch of hooey. I can guarantee you that's hooey. Um, so the teammate, he says, you can tell he is mentally ill. I saw the video and was so disgusted. And the teammate also said, Leah identified as a woman, but she is not a female. That is a fact. It doesn't matter how you feel. Amen to this anonymous person. Amen. Yeah, you can feel like a woman all day long, but you ain't a woman. You're still a man, no matter what you do. All right. So anyway, let's move on here. Let's. I got. I got a Cuba song here. We're gonna have some fun. Uh, we've got a lot to get to. Yes, I'm gonna talk about the the election in Texas, the 34th congressional district. Um, a Republican won for the first time in the special election in a the second heaviest. Hispanic congressional district in the country. Huge, huge. So Hispanics voted for a Republican Hispanic uh, over the Democrat for the first time. We're going to do that. But first, first, let me cue the song. 
And then we'll get to our womanly man of the day. All right? When a man loves a woman, what I would like it to say is when a man becomes a woman, and I'm not talking about transgenderism here, I'm talking about when a man emasculates himself and thereby becomes a woman. So uh, James Patterson, he is an author, 75 years old, and he has now joined our list of castrated males. Uh, He recently stated, suggested, that, uh, you know, being a writer, uh, the industry was biased against white males. Okay, all right. Uh, He said that statement, and uh, immediately, just like our buddy Jack Del Rio, who was, well, he gave us so much hope for just a moment. Well, James Patterson gave us hope, too. He's 75 years old. He spoke the truth. He, He spoke his truth saying that white male writers, uh, well, he, let, me, let me tell you, because he didn't even say it outright, but in his apology basically sums it up. He said in his apology, I apologize for saying white male writers having trouble finding work is a form of racism. He wrote this on Facebook. Weird, you know, usually they use Twitter. That's the, you know, the place of authentication for apologies to the radical left, but he used Facebook, one and the same, nonetheless. Anyway, so he goes further. I absolutely do not believe that racism is practiced against white writers. Please know that I strongly support a diversity of voices being heard in literature, in Hollywood, everywhere. I mean, why can't James Patterson stand strong? He's 75 years old. The guy's worth $800 million. He doesn't need to work a day in his life. What can these people do to him? What, what, what can they, they, are we so weak that we can't defend this statement? I'm going to address this right now from personal experience because there, um, no, let's do this first. Before I get to my personal story, I want to share another story. There's another story out there. This guy was on Fox and Friends, uh, this morning, I believe, um, let me, let me, let me, hold on, hold on. Stay with me. Okay, here we go. Here's the headline. This is huge. So James Patterson, right? He's saying there's discrimination against white males in uh, Hollywood, in the writing profession. Well, and now he's apologizing, saying, oh, that's definitely not true. White men, are, there's no, there's no racism towards white men. No, there's no, no discrimination. Well, an ex-American Express employee has just spoken out on uh, Woke Corporate America. He worked for eight years at uh, the credit card giant American Express. Now, <clears throat> he was uh, suddenly let go in March of 2021. They offered him $200,000 in the end um, to sign paperwork that would bar him from speaking out against the credit card juggernaut, right? So they get... Remember, remember Stormy Daniels, the hush money, hush money. Oh, we got we had impeachable offense. So uh, American Express offered Nick Williams some hush money and he turned it down out of principle. And so he's finally come out. 
He's gathered the courage. Now, this is a man, James Patterson and Jack Del Rio. I want you to see what a man looks like and how I speak of men, how I respect them and how they deserve our respect because they actually have principle and stand up and speak out, unlike you cowards who fold like cheap lawn chairs. Anyway, Nick Williams. So they, they terminated him and three white males uh, based off what American Express was calling company policies, violating company policies. But what they did was fabricated a story. And uh, Williams tells the story that during the lockdowns, during the pandemic, right, this is when people weren't face-to-face. He told a black female small business owner that she couldn't get, obtain a corporate Amex card if she didn't have the necessary documents. You know, articles of incorporation, you know, three months of utility, the normal stuff, right? There's no discrimination against that. If you want a corporate Amex card, you've got to provide certain documentation. And they never even met face-to-face. He didn't know what her ethnicity was. He didn't know she was her business was owned by a minority. But can you guess what happened next? He was fired for discriminating against a black woman, violating a corporate policy. The funny thing about this, which is not that funny, but you know, whatever, as a figure of speech, uh, this business owner who was a black woman, she got mad. And she actually mistreated one of his colleagues who happened to be black as well. And so Williams then informed the business owner she was cut off because he's saying, you can't talk to people like this. Now, I don't know what all she said, but, you know, this idea that you can just treat people however you want, whatever. I mean, you know, this victim mentality. So this black woman's the victim, right? She wouldn't provide the necessary documents that were required to get her her, uh, corporate Amex card. And you know the type. It happens all the time. Some of us have even done it. But, you know, your credit card's rejected or something like that. There's an issue. And then you get mad at the business. You say, well, I, you know, my, my credit card's never been turned down. But, you know, you take it personally. You get all sensitive about it. It's not personal. It, I mean, what's, what's the person that's trying to ring you up supposed to do? They're not the credit card company. So you got to, I mean, now it's gotten easier, right? You get an email or a text and you can just say, yes, it's me. But in the past, you know, it was a pain in the butt. You had to get on the phone. You had to get in touch with somebody. You had to verify that it was you. It was really a pain. But so many people in those situations when their credit card was declined or rejected or whatever, you know, you'd see them get upset, upset at the salesperson who has nothing to do with the situation. So this is one of those situations. But, you know, there's a privileged community out there. And in this case, you know, look, not everyone's like this, but she pulled the black card. That's what she did, apparently. And so Williams then got fired. And he believes that American Express was scared of some lawsuit. Because, you know, that's the world we live in. It's a messed up America, right? Where you can just play the race card whenever you want. And of course, what's so frustrating about it is it nullifies real examples of racism, right? It's like the boy who cried wolf. It happens, but these people take advantage of it. Um... So he also has the receipts on this. Uh, Williams, the guy who was fired, the white employee at Amex, he explained that American Express had actually been awarding raises based on diversity instead of performance. And so they they were doing this diversity push, and and this has been covered for a while um, in terms of them trying to indoctrinate employees with critical race theory, pushing for diversity representation, and so he's coming out and he's, he's suing them. 
He's retained a lawyer, and I believe there's a fund set up now to help him because he's already gone through $100,000. That's what I mean. These lawyers are expensive, and he's competing against American Express. So anyway, look into this story. If you want to help him out, help him out. So Amex is denying everything, of course. Um, But basically, he says, I was the only one out of my colleagues that didn't sign the paperwork, and I turned down a six-figure settlement from American Express to tell them in the world that, that what's happening in woke corporate America, what's happening in American Express right now is not okay. Look at this. This guy turned down 200 grand so that he could speak his mind, and now he's incurred $100,000. This is a man. This is a man. Do you hear me, Jack Del Rio? Do you hear me, uh, uh, James Patterson, whatever? So James Patterson is saying... There's discrimination against white writers. Here's evidence of Amex, the corporation, discriminating against white people. Uh, James Patterson, I think there's something to what he said. Now, my own personal story. So, circa 2015, right? I was trying to make a movie about Byron Nelson, the golfer. And at the same time, I was producing a feature film called I Hate the Man in My Basement. Now, this is all going to go in my book that I'm writing as well. But there was a transformation at that time taking place in Hollywood. And that was a, a, a transformation that was reflected culturally, societally. And one of the targets and victims of the transformation was not just the meritocracy, but it was men. And to give you some background, 2015... The media, the malcontents, these malcontents, these feminazis, they were leading this crusade against what they alleged to be uh, bias against female directors in Hollywood. Now, five years before this, Catherine Bigelow, by the way, had made history. She was the first woman to win the Academy Award for directing. That was the Hurt Locker. And you know what? It went up against Avatar that year. And that, at the time, was the highest grossing film of all time. James Cameron, a man, directed Avatar. There were other films in the mix, but Catherine Bigelow's low-budget Iraq war film about the bomb disposal squad, Jeremy Renner, he went on to do a lot of things after that, but I remember that that was the first big role that I remember him in. But it was a big deal. I mean, she slayed Goliath, right? This little-budget, small-budget film won. Catherine Bigelow won. And, and ironically, she was also James Cameron's ex-wife, so kind of a fun story. And the media celebrated this, right? First woman, right? First woman to win Best Director. And that's great. And she deserved it. It was a great film. But then five years later in 2015, the media was back to complaining. They were saying no woman's been nominated for directing since Bigelow. And they were accusing Hollywood of being a bunch of sexists. But I, I, I mean, if, if, if Hollywood was so sexist, two points. One, <clears throat> pardon me, one, why, why did Hollywood suspend its sexism? Why did the Academy suspend its sexism in 2010 and give the Academy Award the little coveted golden statuette to a woman over a man? And furthermore, if Hollywood was biased against female directors, why wasn't Hollywood biased against female actors? Meryl Streep, she holds the record for the most nominations of any actor. She's a female. Do you know who's second? Catherine Hepburn. Do you know who's first in terms of uh, the most Academy Awards won by an actor? Catherine Hepburn as well. She's got four of the little coveted golden statuettes. A woman. Where's the anti-female 
actor bias. Huh? So I'll give you a perfect example of what happened in Hollywood. So in 2014, right, a year before Hollywood was engaged in this crusade against, you know, what they alleged to be this sexism against women in Hollywood, directors only, of course. Well, 2014, there was an article in the New York Times, and the headline was, Why Don't More Men Go Into Teaching? And the article goes on to explain that teaching is an overwhelmingly female profession. More than three quarters of all teachers in kindergarten through high school are women. That was 2014. 2018, 77% of public school teachers were female. Teaching is a female-dominated profession. Based on those statistics, if I was some idiot like these feminazis, I would suggest that public schools are exhibiting bias against male teachers. If I was a little agitator, a little community organizer, a little good-for-nothing, I would lead a crusade against public schools. You know what? And I would demand that public schools freeze hiring women and only hire men. Hire men exclusively because we have to fix this sexism problem in our public schools. But that would never happen, of course. Because nobody cares about men, for one. The way our society is, the attack on men, which is a theme that keeps happening and popping up in our culture on this very podcast, my show, is that our culture doesn't even value men anymore. Right? It, it seeks to replace them with as many women as possible or others. But James Patterson's point is that white men are the targets. <clears throat> okay, well, I can prove to you that men were targets of discrimination in Hollywood. Back to my story. So, Hollywood is in, in the academy, and these, well, these malcontents are leading the charge, right? So, I produced this movie. And uh, I had household names in the, uh, in the film. I had a great cinematographer, a great script. This isn't a victim story, by the way, because uh, let me preface. I, I sold my movie. I sold my movie in the end anyway. So I accomplished what I set out to do. A distributor bought it. You can go watch it on Amazon. I hate the man in my basement. It's there. So I, I achieved my goal. But when you make an independent film like I do, like I did, right? I hate the man in my... It was independent. I didn't go through the studio. We raised the money. We made the movie. And then you have to go out and sell it to a distributor. And then they put it on a streaming service. They put up the money for a theatrical release. But that's how independent films work. And one of the means with which you can accomplish this is to screen the film at a film festival. Now, not just any festival, one of the big festivals. That would be Cannes, Toronto, South by Southwest is kind of in the mix, uh, Sundance, Maybe Berlin. Anyway, but those are the festivals. You know why they're important? Because buyers and distributors show up. They go there to buy films. Now you can go, you know, to some film festival in Nebraska and have a good time and your family uh, tells you how great you are and maybe you get some, 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 some film nerds who also pat you on the back. But if you screen at South by Southwest or one of these others, you can hope to get more than a pat on the back. You can hope to get a check in your hand and maybe representation. It furthers your career. But obviously those festivals are harder to get into. So, long story short, just like a, a, a student in high school that wants to go to Stanford or, or something, okay? Obviously, you know what the prerequisites are. You got to have the appropriate SAT and ACT scores. You got to have extracurricular activities. You got to have good letters of, ref, of reference, recommendation, all those things. And then, you know, who knows? 5% acceptance rate at Stanford. I mean, let, let's forget about what's going on currently in the culture with them discriminating against certain people. Let's just say it's a fair playing ground. And, and, and then you want to get in. So a college counselor, right, is very important. They can pick up the phone and lobby on your behalf. They can ensure that of the tens of thousands of applications that go to Stanford, yours actually gets a real look. It doesn't just get a passing glance and put in a pile of rejection. 
So it's, an, it's important. That's how life works. Same thing with film. You make a great film and then you approach a Hollywood talent agency, one of the big ones, and you work with them and they lobby on your behalf to make sure that your film is actually seen by the key decision makers. And they can mean the difference in acceptance and rejection. So that's what we did. And at this meeting with a top three Hollywood agency, an agent told my director point blank to his face, it's a bad time for men. He told my director, it's a bad time for men. The festivals are looking for female-directed films. If you were a woman, you'd have a really good chance. To our face. Is that not discrimination against men? Now, statistics. In 2015, 25% of the film... I'm using South by Southwest because I wanted to premiere there. That was my target because I like Austin. I'm a Texan. I had been to the festival before and my friend screened it and sold his film there. And I wanted barbecue really bad, okay? That was the, the, the final thing for me. So think about this. 2015, before this crusade against men, 25% of the films at South by Southwest were female-directed or co-directed. The next year, 2016, are you ready? 40% of the films were female-directed. And in 2017, the year that I had submitted my film to South by Southwest, 70% of the narrative features selected for competition in the South by Southwest Film Festival were female-directed or co-directed. 70%. That is overt discrimination against men. Overt. Whatever. I sold my film in the end, but I'm telling you from personal experience, yeah, it happens. So I just gave you two stories, one personal, one recent that just broke yesterday and today about what happened to this white male at American Express. And James Patterson comes out and says something that I know to be true from personal experience in Hollywood. They do discriminate against white men. Everyone knows it with all the initiatives. It's not a secret. And yet he is silenced and comes out and apologizes. So when a man becomes a woman, is uh, the story of James Patterson, another emasculated, castrated, uh, uh, you know, he, he could have been a hero, but he's, he's another loser. All right, let's get into some other stuff here. Um, so the January 6th panel, the show trial's been going on, and, and I think Rasmussen just did a poll, Rasmussen, however you want to say it. Uh, this, this poll found that, well, let's backtrack. January 6th, you know, they were doing this primetime initiative, right? They're hoping to blow this thing up because no Americans cared about it and the Democrats are desperate. They're desperate to hold on to power, so they resort to a Soviet tactic of a show trial. That's what this is. An old Soviet Soviet communist era tactic. <clears throat> also in Nazi Germany, by the way. They did this kind of thing too. <clears throat> but anyway, so they're trying to blow this up. Americans already didn't care about it to begin with. And guess what? This poll found that 20% of likely voters said they'd watch. 20%. 20% were interested in watching. Can you imagine who those 20% were, by the way? What kind of miserable person has to sit around at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and watch the January 6th committee hold hearings on something that never happened, on something that isn't true? That is a miserable person. Of all the things... Hey, uh, Drew... You want to go out and see Top Gun tonight? No, no, sorry, guys. Sorry, I, I'm, are you busy, Drew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to watch this January 6th show trial. Hey, Drew, you want to go see the uh, Golden State Warriors play? Uh, You know, it's an NBA Finals game. 
We got a booth, a box seat, you know, all you can eat, all you can drink. We got a limousine driving us there and back. You could have a good time. No, sorry, guys. That sounds like a lot of fun, but not as much fun as watching the January 6th trial on TV tonight. So anyway, uh, I'm so glad I don't know any people watching this. <clears throat> anyway, so so it's going so swimmingly for them that they, <laughs> they're hinting at a fresh revelations. You know why they're hinting at fresh revelations? They delayed the hearing. They were supposed to have another hearing, I think, tonight, and they postponed it, and they're citing technical difficulties, right? It's just so complex. They've got to get this video together, and they need more time to really do it justice. This is such a joke. Uh, I want to play something. Do you remember? This is Russia collusion 2.0, by the way. They have no goods. Now, they're trying to threaten out there. They're promising their rabid leftist voters who want to see Donald Trump hanged in the public square, literally, well, they're promising, yeah, we could really bring criminal, criminal, a criminal prosecution against Trump. That's right. We could put him in jail for January 6th. But anyway, none of that's going to happen. Here's Adam Schiff. Let's just go back in time. Here's Adam Schiff uh, talking about Trump-Russia collusion, promising us he was going to deliver the good, promising us that he had proof that Trump and Putin colluded to steal the 2016 election. Here we go. Can you agree that there has been no evidence of collusion coordination or conspiracy that has been presented thus far between the Trump campaign and Russia? Uh, No, I don't agree with that at all. I think there's plenty of evidence of collusion or conspiracy in plain sight. Now, that's a a different statement than... Oh, yeah, Trump-Russia collusion. It's uh, it's in plain sight. You you, you, You just can't see it. It's in plain sight. But where is it? What is this, a magic trick, Adam Schiff? Same thing here. Same thing here. Now, the premise of January 6th, remember, is one, Trump incited an insurrection. Uh, we know that didn't happen. But, um, and so kind of point two is they're trying to convince the American people that, you know, Trump tried to steal the election again, right? So they're talking about how he pressured Pence and other members of, of, of Congress to uh, not not to certify the election results, not to certify them. Now, that's not illegal. It's actually constitutional. That's part of the process. And so I want you to remember this. So they are saying that because Trump pressured them, pressured Pence not to certify the election results, that's akin to an insurrection. That is akin to trying to overturn the will of the people. That is something that that he must be punished for. I'm going to play a montage of some Democrats here. Hillary Clinton. Uh, well, I'll play the clip and then I'll remember who, who it is. But this is them. This is them uh, calling for Congress, defending Congress, certain people in Congress, not certifying election in the past. I'll get into it more in a second. Here we go. Anyone who can say that we have a fair election system or that this is the best that we can do, the 2004 election in Ohio and elsewhere revealed that enormous problems remain in our election systems and democracy and the integrity of the most precious right of any citizen, namely the right to vote. As we look at our election system, I think it's fair to say that there are many legitimate questions about its accuracy, about its integrity, and they're not confined to the state of Ohio. 
They are ones that have arisen throughout. I think it's fair to say that there are many legitimate questions about its accuracy, about its integrity, and they're not confined to the state of Ohio. Well, I cut it off there. You know, Obama, I had Obama coming up next, but nobody needs to hear Obama. That's enough pain in your ears, you know. But but there you have it. That was Maxine Waters, obviously. Her screeching voice is unmistakable. But you had Maxine Waters and Hillary Clinton questioning the 2004 election result, right? George Bush. So, you know, these are things that they, they've said we're not allowed to say. You, you can't question the, the integrity. Uh, I mean, what, what did they just do? I mean, these people are such frauds. Such frauds. Um, so there you go. You have them on record doing exactly that which they say Trump uh, is forbidden from doing, right? And they did uh, uh, call into question. Let me see if I can find it here. A little note I made for myself. Um, <laughs> I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Uh yeah, well, whatever. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't find the, uh, the note here. But anyway, the point was I wanted to play that clip because we are told that questioning the integrity of the election results is forbidden, right? That contributed to an insurrection and so on and so forth. But these people have done it time and time again. And in fact, these people have already questioned the 2022 midterms, saying they don't trust those elections. That's Democrats saying that all the time, all the time. So there's nothing to this. I mean, this January 6th show trial... It's a farce. It's a farce. I mean, they're serious about it. I mean, they, they are dangerous, the Democrats, but there's nothing to it. It's like Trump-Russia collusion. There's nothing behind it. All right. Now, what's the latest? Uh, Joe Biden, brilliant uh, Joe Biden, diaper Joe. He is threatening uh, gas and oil companies. Here's what he said the other day. Your companies and others have an opportunity to take immediate actions to increase the supply of gasoline, diesel, and other refined product you're producing. My administration is prepared to use all reasonable and appropriate federal government tools and emergency authorities to increase refinery capacity and output in the near term and to ensure that every region of this country is appropriately supplied. Now, let me tell you what he's doing here. He is blockaded. Their abilities. Now, I've told you before, there's a difference between leases and permits. Um, you know, just because you give somebody a lease doesn't mean they have the permit to drill. There's a lot of games they're playing here. And as a matter of fact, you know, there's a Washington Post headline from just May 11th. That's a little more than a month ago. Biden pulls three offshore oil lease sales, curbing new drilling. So they had these leases to drill off the uh, Gulf of Mexico and off of another coastal area, and Biden pulled them. So he's lying. He's gaslighting. And he's expecting that you are an idiot. So he's responsible for this. He's creating the crisis, and now he's blaming the gas and oil companies. It's not their fault. It's his fault. And you know what? If you voted for him, clap like a seal. Clap like a seal because you voted for it. Here is Joe Biden on the campaign trail at a Democrat debate with Bernie Sanders back in 2020. Number one, 
No more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. Well, he didn't really mince his words. I mean, the guy can't really put together a coherent sentence. He, he never makes sense, but he was very clear there. Very clear. Unmistakable, as a matter of fact. I mean, that might be the most coherent clip that exists from Joe Biden's mouth in his entire career, his entire life, as a matter of fact, certainly in the last couple of years since he has uh, been installed in the Oval Office there. Um, but there you have it. Another thought on my mind, though, was simply in reference to the Democrats. Notice how when a Republicans won, right? Like in 2004 with Bush, whatever. You know, they're always questioning the integrity of the elections, accusing Republicans of cheating. What is the only election in American history, well, in recent history, right, this modern Democratic Party that we have, what's the only election that they said was like the safest and fairest election in American history? 2020, which tells you what? It was the least fair and the least secure. Bingo. All these other elections when we didn't have unsolicited mail-in ballots, we had all these problems, but we just did what every other country in the world has banned, which is unsolicited mail-in ballots because they are the prime source of fraud. So we did that nationwide. And the Democrats say it's the freest, fairest election in American history. Tells you everything you need to know. Now, I got one more clip I want to play for you because I want you to just listen. It's a longer clip. I want you to listen to who the Democrats are. As they accuse Donald Trump of inciting an insurrection, as they continue to blame Republicans for, you know, white supremacy and so on and so forth, as they come for your guns, all of this stuff, right? Democrats, the, the peacemakers, right? So much integrity. Well, here's a montage of. Democrats. I, I, I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country. Maybe there will be. People need to start taking to the streets. This is a dictator. You know, there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there is unrest in our lives. Enemies of the state. Show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. Do something about your dad's immigration practices, you feckless. When they go low, we can... How do you resist the temptation to run up and wring her neck? Biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. I thought he should have punched him in the face. So even if you lost, he insulted your wife. Yes. He came down the escalator and called Mexicans rapists and murders. He said, well, what do you think I should have done? I said, I think you should have punched him in the face and then gotten out of the race. You would have been a hero. I'd like to punch him in the face. I said, if we were in high school, I'd take you behind the gym and beat the hell out of him. Punch some people in the face! When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? They're still going to have to go out and put a bullet in Donald Trump. And that's a fact. Look as his character is stabbed to death. Where is John Wilkes Booth when you need him? Well, I don't think that needs further commentary. I think that the point is made pretty clearly by that clip, don't you think? Uh, can you imagine if any Republican, if Trump, if I ever said a single one of those words, I'm going to take him out back publicly, right? If I said that on TV or anywhere else, uh, my career would be over. 
I would be canceled in a heartbeat. I mean, we get canceled for telling the truth. So uh, something like that. I mean, you, you forget about it. All bets off. But they say that routinely. And there's no condemnation. There's no problems. No nothing. Um, but that was, that, was, that was purely Democrats um, calling for violence, espousing violence, you know, talking about the president of the United States in such a way. Assassination used in the same sentence as the president of the United States. All right, now we're going to close out here. We're getting to the end of the program. Um, the Well, two things. One, so the DNC, that story I was talking about. So they were forced to reschedule a fundraiser with Kamala Harris due to dismal ticket sales, right? So, so they sent out the memo. The event was rescheduled last minute for the autumn when the event is traditionally held after the event couldn't sell enough tickets. So this event was hyped as an incredible opportunity to mingle in person after two years of virtual events and meetings, and nobody wanted to show up. Nobody wanted to show up, right? Wow, look, we're finally out of quarantine. Uh, uh, even though this is probably a super spreader event, uh, you know, Fauci has uh, come down with COVID despite 3,600 uh, vaccinations and boosters. But anyway, come to the event. So they were selling these ticket prices were, I mean, $250 to $50,000. And uh, the DNC spokesperson, his name is Daniel Wessel in the past, He's actually on record claiming that Kamala Harris is a huge draw for events. But uh, he is uh, quiet as a mouse. Haven't heard a peep from him. He hasn't explained, given his reason why the event was rescheduled, but we know nobody cares about Kamala Harris. Um, Let's see. I know I'm pulling a Ben Shapiro here. I say that with due respect because I'm speaking fast because I have so much I wanted to get to. But um, I did want to address, I guess, there was, a, there was a special election held in Texas. It's down in the San Antonio area. It's the 34th Congressional District. It's the second heaviest Hispanic district in America. And it went for a Republican. Uh, her name's Myra Flores. And... She beat out Dan Sanchez. Now, this is a special election, right? You had somebody named Philemon Vela, the incumbent. He'd held that seat for, I think, 10 years. And he, Vela, stepped down, resigned months ago to get a lobbying job. And that tells you everything you need to know. He was one of many members of Congress who didn't want to lose, who could see the tea leaves. And so he resigned, decided to go cash in as a lobbyist. But in 2020, um, Vela, who, who was the one who resigned, I mean, he just destroyed the Republican opposition, a guy named Ray Gonzalez. So, you know, you got Hispanic versus Hispanic here. That's fine. So that's a similar thing that happened here. But Philemon Vela got 55.5% to Gonzalez, the Republicans, 41.8%. So it was, it was basically just a wipeout. Now, this was a special election, which means that Flores will take over that seat until January. In the meantime, in November, she's going to have to run for election again, though, against uh, who's she running against? Gonzalez, a, Gonza- a different guy. This is in November. Now, here's the thing. The district's changing. Obviously, we just had a census, and every time you do the census, you have to go and redraw the congressional maps uh, to reflect the change in population. So the 34th district is disappearing. It's going to become something else. 
And so Flores will be running for that seat against Gonzalez. But she got 14,780 votes to 12,560 votes for the Democrat, Dan Sanchez. And it is a big deal. Now, now look, I look at this from all angles. I'm looking for negatives, positive. What can we learn from this? Um, obviously, voter turnout was much lower than a presidential year, like in 2020, right? I mean, 111,000 votes for the Democrat in 2020, 14,780. 14,780 votes for Myra Flores, the Republican, in the special election. But I, I don't see that changing. I think that, look, we've known this for a long time. As Democrats push and embrace late-term abortion and all these things, the Hispanic communities are conservative by nature. They're mostly Catholic as well, and so they're pro-life. And as a matter of fact, this is the thing. They're losing Democrat votes. We saw this in 2020. The alarm bells were going off for Democrats. We're talking about 20, 30, 40 point shifts away from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Hispanics are fleeing the Democratic Party, which is also why they're importing, as we speak, millions and millions of illegals into this country to replace those Hispanics who've been here for a while, who've seen the light. That's what it's all about. But, uh, but anyway, Flores' opponent as uh, a pro-life Democrat. Have you ever heard of a pro-life Democrat these days? No. What does that tell you? These people are too radical. They can't run in these districts anymore. They're losing the Hispanic vote. So I think we can expect good things for Flores. But um, I'll play a clip from MSNBC. I don't usually do this because it pains me unless I'm making fun of them. But I'm not making fun of them in this case. This is MSNBC. This is their commentary on that special election in Texas. They get it. They see what's happening. County, whether it's in this district or some of the districts to the west of it, where voters have moved 10, 20, 30, 40 points away from the Democrats and toward the Republicans. This district that Myra Flores won last night, Barack Obama got more than 60% of the vote here when he last ran in 2012. Hillary Clinton won this district by 22 points. It's shifted that dramatically. Joe Biden carried it by four in 2020. And now in a special election, a Republican candidate has won it outright. We've seen shifts like this throughout South Texas. This, by the way, is the... Yeah, so he goes on to tell you what I just told you, that that was the, uh, you know, second heaviest Hispanic district, congressional district in America. And it went for Republican for the first time. So huge. Um, Let me close out with this story. I got a couple minutes, I think, here to keep your attention. I want to go back to January 6th because they're going to keep trying to drum this up. And, um, you know... The, the committee's trying to lay out its findings, right, the January 6th committee, that is, about Trump's attempts to use the Justice Department to overturn the 2020 election, right? So here's what they're up to. This, this House committee, uh, they're trying to get together something to convince the American people that, um, you know, Trump, Trump pressured Vice President Pence uh, trying to persuade him to throw out legitimate electoral votes for Joe Biden to keep Trump in power. Uh, So that 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 that's that's what they're going for, and they're they're trying to say that oh yeah, there's a criminal referral here. Nonsense. Thursday, January six, two thousand five. This is from CNN. Alleging widespread irregularities on Election Day, a group of Democrats in Congress objected Thursday to the counting of Ohio's 20 electoral votes. 
delaying the official certification of the 2004 presidential election results. Should I read that again? (laughs) Citing widespread irregularities on election day, a group of Democrats in Congress objected Thursday to the county of Ohio's 20... They're objecting. The objecting Democrats, most of whom are House members, said they wanted to draw attention to the need for aggressive election reform in the wake of what they said were widespread voter... That's exactly what the point of that was, to draw attention to the widespread voter problems. Back then, and this is you know going back to the CNN article, 2005, Democrats, how can we possibly tell millions of Americans who registered to vote, who came to the polls in record numbers, particularly our young people, to simply get over it and move on, Tubbs-Jones told reporters. How about that, huh? How can we expect people just to move, just to get over it? Weren't we told to just get over it and move on in 2020? Isn't that what we were told? Free and fair elections, shut up. Bush said, shut up. We can't question anything. Just suck it up. Get over it. Move on. That's not what the Democrats did in 2005. So, I just want you to know that the Democrats have done the same thing. uh, And they've done it multiple times. And so, January 6th is a farce. These aren't serious people. I mean, they, they sit here and think that we're dumb and we don't know that they did this in 2005. They think we're idiots. Some people are. You're not. I'm not. We're the most informed Americans in the country. All right, we'll close out with that. God bless you all. Until next time.